Welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you joining us by webcast or podcast, welcome to the meeting. Today we present Patrick O'Driscoll, President and CEO of Corby's Spirit and Wine. We stand here today virtually 100 years uh, to the day from when this country was in the teeth of prohibition. You only need to visit Toronto's local distillery district to understand a little better the complex history of booze and politics in this country. Our speaker today underscores how far we have come. Today's speaker comes from Corby's, the leading Canadian marketer and distributor of spirits and wine. You may recognize some of their brands, which include Absolute Vodka, Beefeater Gin, Kahlua, Jameson, and J.P. Weiser's Whiskey. Corby has a long history in Ontario, starting with Henry Corby, who first immigrated to Canada in 1826. Since the incorporation of his distillery in 1859, Corby's business has grown exponentially. What was once a small and humble whiskey distillery in Ontario is now the largest distillery in North America. It just celebrated 50 years of being traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It is truly a Canadian success story. The reason why I bring up Corby's past is to recognize the long history of whiskey in Ontario. But as it is important to recognize the past, it is essential that we look toward the future. What is needed to ensure the success story continues? Well, our speaker this afternoon is the best person to explain. Having joined, first joined Corby's in 2009, he has been with the company for a decade now. Before Corby, he was the CEO of Malibu Kahlua International and held various roles across several brands and distilleries. One of Canada's leading experts in booze, a title we would all like to have. Uh, please welcome to the stage, Patrick O'Driscoll. What an amazing, uh, amazing uh, description. Um, so, Mike, thanks very much for that, that kind introduction. And, and ladies and gentlemen, um, Thank you so much for uh, having me here. It's a, a great honor to be here at the, at the Empire Club. And, um, you know, when I saw the video earlier and saw the quality and the status of others who have addressed this forum, I hope you'll forgive me for a little bit of sense of the uh, imposter syndrome. Um, nevertheless, I do have an advantage, and, and that is that I'm speaking about a subject to which I am incredibly passionate about, and, and that's whiskey. Well, with all the, the talk over the last couple of years about uh, cannabis legalization, um, we in the spirits uh, industry, uh, you know, we've had reason to, uh, to feel a little neglected at times, I have to say. But uh, despite whatever, you know, buzz that you've heard about the uh, uh, cannabis industry, um, I'm delighted to tell you that the, the spirits industry here in Canada is alive and well. Uh, we're bringing exciting new products to market to Canadian consumers, and we're making a splash internationally uh, with spirits and, and, why, and spirits that are winning international markets that are being served in some of the most prestigious bars and restaurants around the world. And we're doing that, uh, frankly, uh, despite some uh, clear discriminatory barriers to our growth, which is part of which uh, I'd like, or part of what I'd like to speak to you about today. Because at a time when the Ontario government is implementing some pretty substantive 
reforms to the sale of beverage alcohol. We want to ensure that spirits are included in that conversation. And I have to say that to date, we have not been given the same chance as beer and wine to compete for consumers in grocery and other private stores, and it's time to speak out. So let me first give you a little bit of context as to my history. Uh, Mike talked a little bit about it, but, uh, and also why I might have some credentials for this particular uh, topic. So first of all, I left uh, university in the UK many, many moons ago with a degree in environmental biology. And unfortunately, in 1982, under a Thatcher government, a deep recession, and little awareness of global warming, uh, there just weren't too many jobs in environment for environmental biologists. So undeterred, I uh, decided to pursue a career in uh, one of my other key interests at university, which, like many students, was alcohol. <laughs> well, to cut a long story short, I was fortunate enough to, to work for several large international drinks giants. And in 1992, I joined a relatively small player at the time, Panorica of France, which through a, a series of major acquisitions, including Seagram and Allied de Mec, became the number two player globally. Today, as was mentioned, I'm president and CEO of Corby Spirit and Wine, an affiliated company of Panorica, but also, uh, as Mike mentioned, publicly listed here in Toronto. And as was mentioned, we've just celebrated our 50th anniversary of listing on the TSX, and indeed this is our 160th year uh, of operation. So Corby is actually one of Canada's oldest companies. And Henry Corby uh, established his distilling business back in 1859 in Belleville, Ontario. He was originally a miller and a, and a baker, uh, but as many of the farmers uh, you know, paid for his services with grain, uh, he determined that the best way of turning that into cash was to distill that grain into whiskey. And the Corby story is a wonderful story of early entrepreneurialism. And I could talk about it for hours, but I'm going to keep moving ahead. His was not the only story, however. There were, there were other whiskey barons at the same time, one of, the, one of those being Joseph Seagram, then there was Hiram Walker, J.P. Weiser, and William Goodrum and James Wirt, so a name you'll be familiar from the, the uh, distillery district here in Toronto. And they all established businesses around the same time. And these businesses grew, the expertise in, in the products were, uh, was developed, and then due to, to historical uh, happenings, events, um, they uh, really took off. One of those was, uh, the first event was the American Civil War when distilleries in the American South were shut down. And the second, of course, was, as we mentioned, prohibition. And this really developed a taste for Canadian whiskey south of the border. Now at home, excise taxes were, were collected on these thriving businesses. Uh, and indeed, as this was long before the, the invention of income tax, uh, these excise taxes were, from distilling, were actually one of the major contributors to the early infrastructure of Canada, such as railways and roads and, and even towns and cities like Walkerville, which is now uh, in Windsor. So the quality of, of what was and indeed still is being produced is absolutely on equal footing to what has been done in Scotch whiskey, in Irish whiskey, 
in Bourbon, or even in Cognac. And actually, it was, it was the Canadians that first mandated that there should be a minimum number of years of aging of whiskey and oak barrels for smoothness. And yet, despite all that, Canadian whiskey is just not as successful on international markets as these other categories. So, what's the difference? Is it the size of Canada? Well, I have to say that doesn't seem to have held back Irish whiskey. No, I think the fact is that these other countries, you know, they consider their national spirits as national treasures that should be supported and provided with an environment that allows them to succeed. And when I talk about an environment, I am absolutely not talking about handouts of the type that governments often provide to local wines, for instance. I mean a fair and level playing field that allows businesses to do what they do best, answer the needs of consumers. Now, during my career, I spent about seven years working in Scotch whiskey, and I traveled to, to markets all over the globe, developing demand for famous brands like the Glenlivet, Chivas Regal, and Ballantines. And we were helped in our efforts by the Scotch Whiskey Association, which fostered positive support from government departments, including economic development, overseas trade, and finance. And Scotch whiskey and spirits companies in the UK are seen as important added value manufacturing, and they've not been penalized in their home domestic market. I was just mentioning this at the table. The most recent figures show that Scotch whiskey accounts for a staggering 10% of the GDP of not Scotland, but the UK. How incredible. Well, you can imagine that when I arrived in Canada, I was um, a little bit perplexed by the government's attitude towards its own beverage alcohol market, and especially Canadian whiskey. Not only is there a relative lack of support, but also punitive policies, such as the current perpetual annual increase in federal excise taxes that seemed to be designed to limit rather than encourage our growth. I moved to Canada in 2010, and in 2018, uh, I'm pleased to say that Canada was nice enough to offer me citizenship. Thank you. Um, during my, my time here, I have to say I have developed an incredible uh, passion for Canadian whiskey. Um, and I hope that one of the things that I can give back to Canada is to help the growth of this national treasure. So as a company, uh, five or six years ago, we began our quest to really revitalize premium Canadian whiskey. And we relaunched a number of iconic products, lot number 40, Pike Creek, Goodrum Wurtz, and these have been recognized as world-beating, award-winning products that typify the style and expertise of Canadian whiskey and what we can do. And we've also rejuvenated JP Weiser's launching some wonderful award-winning premium expressions. So at this point, you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you really should consider putting a few of these on your gift lists for the holiday season. That's my plug. Now, Given the size and maturity of the Canadian domestic market, uh, we see much of Corby's future growth coming from export. Products like our premium craft Canadian whiskies and indeed our, uh, our Quebec sauce and garbage gin 
they have global appeal. For the past years, we've been working to elevate their profile, and I have to say we have been getting some, some very, very positive uh, feedback and response from bartenders around the world and, and, and communities, and it's been most encouraging. But the problem is, it takes a lot of money to build an export business and enter new markets. And therein lies the rub. Because you may not know that spirits are disproportionately highly taxed, with taxes and markups accounting for almost 80% of the retail price that you and I pay on shelf. The heavy tax, taxes that are imposed on spirits in addition to the limited number of distribution channels available to us here in Ontario, they dampen our profits and they limit the amount that we can invest pursuing international growth. And that not only affects our future, but it also affects the future of our key partners in our supply chain, like the Ontario grain farmers, for instance. So this brings me to the second part of, of my speech. And as I'm now a you know, proud Canadian citizen, um, I'm going to approach this sensitive topic as nicely and as politely as any Canadian would, you know, a bit like you know, apologizing when somebody steps on your foot. What I'm about to say has to be said. Um, in the ongoing discussions about how beverage alcohol is sold in Ontario, there's, I think there's one aspect that just doesn't get enough attention and that aspect is fairness. Let me give you some, some facts. In Ontario, you can buy beer in 660 LCBO stores, 200 agency stores, 450 beer stores, 450 grocery stores, and a handful of wine boutiques. And then you can buy wine uh, in those same LCBO channels, uh, plus uh, another 150 grocery stores, 68 wine boutiques, 224 privately owned wine retail outlets, making up around about six channels that beer and wine uh, can be uh, retailed in. And that is po posed, poised to further increase. Well, how many channels are there for spirits? Two just the LCBO and their agency stores. That's it. We're the only beverage alcohol sector in Ontario that is only available in the LCBO. And frankly, I cannot find a good reason for it. And the situation exists because previous governments have made political decisions unrelated to economic or consumer factors Time again, they've intervened in the free and open market, essentially picking winners and losers. And most recently, the previous government here in Ontario went against the recommendations of their own hand-picked independent advisor, and they provided exclusive access to new channels for beer and wine. Now, even worse, even worse, these expanded channels for beer and wine include imported products, wines from France, Italy, California, beers from Europe and, and America, they are getting more exposure to Ontario consumers that's, than spirits that are made here in Ontario by Ontario workers with grains grown on Ontario farms. Now just think about that for a second. 
By its actions, the Ontario government is supporting jobs, economic activity and investment in foreign markets above jobs and opportunities here for Ontario workers and Ontario communities. You know, I was thinking about that, and, and by this logic, you know, we should be seeing, you know, Tourism Ontario advertising European river cruises. It doesn't make sense. Political policy and decision-making have created uh, an uneven playing field, and it's putting some players at a competitive disadvantage within the same market. So the obvious question has to be, why are spirits treated differently? What really is the difference between beer, wine, and spirits? Well, before I, I look at those answers, I want to be clear in something. Nothing in, in this presentation, this speech, is against beer or wine. There are partners, and by the way, actually, Corby owns its own winery in, in Niagara called the Foreign Affair. And I also want to be clear that this is absolutely in no way any criticism of the LCBO. Corby enjoys an excellent relationship with the LCBO, and I, I truly believe that they do a great job providing consumer choice and experience within the remit that they've been set. My message is purely about fairness. I don't necessarily care which channels are open or not. I'm primarily concerned that the playing field is not tipped unfairly to stifle our success. Now, one of the arguments for treating spirits differently uh, from beer and wine is that they have a higher alcohol content. Let's look at that for a moment. Yes, a standard bottle of whiskey is at 40% alcohol by volume compared to 12% for your average glass of wine and maybe 5% for beer. But it's not that simple because serving sizes are different. A 12-ounce bottle of beer or your average serving in a restaurant, a five-ounce glass of wine, and a single measure of spirit all have precisely the same amount of alcohol in them. And despite spirits sometimes being disparaged as hard liquor, I can assure you as a science graduate that the alcohol molecule is exactly the same compound in every single case. The ongoing premiumization of spirits overwhelmingly sees today's consumer enjoying spirits in cocktails, savoring them on the rocks, or in refreshing long drinks, just as happens with beer and wine. Are they prone to some abuse? I'd be very naive to say no, but at the same, or the same can be said for beer and wine. Sadly, all types of alcohol can be subject to misuse when not consumed responsibly. So again, why are we treated differently? Is it about, you know, are we truly Canadian? Well, this is a misconception I, I hope I dispelled earlier in this talk. There's been a distillery industry here in Ontario for more than 200 years. Whiskey brands like J.P. Weiser's were founded on Ontario, where they continue to be crafted using ingredients grown here in Ontario. In fact, Ontario distilleries are the largest buyer of rye grain in the whole of Canada. And they're the fourth largest uh, buyer of Ontario corn. And I have to say, I'm pretty proud that Hiram Walker Distillery in Windsor you know, really supports its local farming community right across southern Ontario. So perhaps, perhaps selling spirits in grocery and private stores is seen as a threat to the LCBO. 
Most people don't realize that spirits as a category is the largest contributor to provincial alcohol revenues. They don't know that the provincial markup on spirits borders on the punitive. The taxes paid on a bottle of whiskey are at least double that paid on beer and wine. So even before the government opened new channels of distribution to some alcohol sectors but not others, we were already fighting somewhat of an uphill battle. We've been told that there's, there's a fear that expanding sales of spirits to new channels will lower provincial revenues, that it may actually threaten the LCBO. And we see no evidence of this. And in fact, you only have to look west if you go to, the, to BC, the British Columbia Liquor Distribution Branch, which is the equivalent of the LCBO in BC. They doubled their net income to the provincial treasury and they saw consumer satisfaction ratings increase from 85 to 99% following the introduction of private standalone liquor stores. And these private stores, they operate selling beer, wine, and spirits in conjunction with and complementary to the government-owned and operated stores. So again, why are spirits treated differently? Is it that Ontarians, they're against selling spirits in the same place as beer and wine? Well. There was a recent survey that more than 1,000 people conducted this past April, and it found widespread support for allowing spirits to be sold alongside beer and wine in grocery and private stores. And 70% agreed that selling spirits in grocery stores can be done responsibly as, selling as, responsibility, as responsibly as selling beer and wine. And the same percentage agreed that spirits should be available in any store authorized to sell those other categories. Now, in fact, our, our current premier, in his first throne speech after taking office in June 2018, said this. He said, your new government will respect consumers and they'll trust adults to make responsible choices that work for them. And we as an industry, industry wholly agreed with that sentiment. So we find a kind of find it strange that that same administration seems to suggest that choosing a gin and tonic is just too risky a choice for most grown adults. So we really haven't yet found the answer to what makes spirits different. If it's not our commitment to Ontario and Canada, and it's not a risk to the LCBO, and the polls show that Ontarians support it, then it has to be an economic argument, right? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, spirits as a category are the largest contributor to provincial revenues in the alcohol sector. A few years ago, Spirits Canada and the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs created, did a study and they showed that spirits production in Ontario supported more than 6,000 direct and indirect jobs, contributed 1.5 billion to the Ontario GDP and brought in more than $400 million through exports. And by the way, that figure, that export figure, exceeds the combined total exports of beer and wine, not from just Ontario, but across Canada. And all of this is being put at risk if beer and wine is offered in private stores and spirits are excluded and remain solely in the LCBO. And I'm not making a fanciful, you know, random forecast with that projection. We just have to look to our neighbors to the east to see what we're facing. 
In Quebec, in the 1970s, spirits accounted for 40% share of the alcohol market. Then in the late 70s and early 80s, Quebec permitted the sale of beer and wine, first in grocery stores, and then in convenience stores. And within a decade, within a decade, the market share of spirits plummeted to 14%. Quebec-based distilleries closed, and thousands of employees lost their jobs, and every single spirit company headquartered in Montreal pulled up stakes and relocated Toronto, including Corby, by the way. So just think of the negative impact that could have in Ontario. There'd be 225,000 tons of grain from Ontario farmers left without a market. Distilleries would close, jobs would be lost, and federal and provincial revenues would go down. So what does make spirits different from beer and wine? And the clear answer to that question, ladies and gentlemen, we've been asking is this. Absolutely nothing. There is no difference. And it's well past time that the provincial government ended its wrong-headed discrimination against Ontario-made spirits. If this policy to increase access, if, if that is the policy, then we should be afforded the same opportunity for, as beer and wine to compete for consumers in whatever channels are opened. And the potential impacts are great, including spirits in the expanded retail model for beverage alcohol will result in more money for the province. Because spirits are taxed higher than beer and wine, the more tax sales are limited, the worse it is for provincial revenues and indeed for the fiscal deficit. By recent estimates, expansion, including spirits, could mean an extra $100 million per year for provincial treasury, not to mention my starting point and my passion that Canadian whiskey and Canadian whiskey industry could begin to fund its expansion into new international markets, drive economic activity, and realize the full potential of this fantastic local treasure. I want to say again that nothing I have said is intended as criticism of the LCBO and its dedicated employees, or indeed our worthy competitors in beer and wine. My comment today is focused upon the way that government is expanding retail access of beverage alcohol. We believe that government should be in the business of expanding, should be in the business of, of creating level playing fields and then letting consumers make their choices. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the day, a drink is a drink is a drink. And by the way, if it's made by Corby, I can assure you it will be as smooth and as enjoyable as they come. So thank you very much for having me uh, and your time today. I wish you the very best for the coming holiday season. Uh, I'm going to hand it back to, to Mike, and I'm happy to take some questions on either the subject of Canadian whiskey or indeed environmental biology. Thank you. Uh, thanks, very, thanks very much to Patrick. Uh, we do have a couple mics uh, in the audience. If, uh, if anyone uh, has a question, uh, we'd, uh, we'd love, uh, Patrick would love to, to field it. 
Um, I am struck by the, you know, as you talk, and, and I know you're, you're not pointing fingers at the LCBO, but it, of course, in their name is the word control, and uh, you know, I think that in some ways is reflective of something of a provincial attitude we've had about this industry. Um, you know, if there's one wish I guess you could have for the holidays, if, is there one simple thing that just seems to be on the top of your policy ask list that you feel the government could do uh, today? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as I probably um, said earlier, I just think we would just want fair treatment. We just want a level playing field. And, uh, you know, I think by, by tipping the scales in the direction of one, you know, one beneficiary or the other, uh, it, it has so many, so many implications that aren't really well thought through. Um, at the end of the day, you know, um, there is relatively low access to points of purchase in, in Ontario. It's the lowest of any, any province across the country. Uh, I think it makes sense to, to increase um, access and make it easier. Um, but you know, the, all we're asking for is that whatever decisions are made you know, are fair to, to all segments. Any, uh, any questions? Uh, we have any questions? Right here. Patrick, I'm curious, uh, obviously a very competitive global market for the spirits industry. You mentioned some of the other whiskey sectors, uh, Scotch obviously being the leader. Uh, what's the history of Canadian whiskey compared to those other sort of premier national brands that we know, American Bourbon and others? Where does Can Canadian whiskey rank and, and where has it ranked in, in the years past and what are the opportunities for it? Well, I mean, it, it, it's an amazing story really because, um, you know, Canadian whiskey, you know, in terms of um, uh, the market used to be, you know, number one or number two, uh, and that was, you know, primarily due to the, you know, the size of the of the U.S. market, uh, obviously the biggest market on our doorstep, and um, you know, in the um, uh, in many years ago, you know, there was an incredible thirst for Canadian whiskey, you know, developed, I think, primarily through uh, those two um, uh, historical events that I that I mentioned. So uh, it's been it's been a you know, very big market, but we've been overtaken really in terms of, of growth um, by both bourbon uh, and uh, and by Irish whiskey as well. You know, a very small category that's grown grown enormously, and um, you know I think the, the the fact is that uh, some of those markets have been able to invest significantly more um, because you know in the case of bourbon. You know, the, uh, it is, the U.S. is the most profitable market for, uh, for wines and spirits. Uh, so they, they had the investment capacity to build, build those export markets. Uh, Irish whiskey, you know, in a similar way. Um, so, you know, we've, we've really fallen down the rankings, to be honest. And outside of the U.S., we, I, there are very few markets where Canadian whiskey has made a, um, you know, has been able to penetrate uh, with strong investment over the last uh, few years. Thank you very much. Uh, I, oh, we have a question? Oh, we have one question. Yes, thank you. You mentioned at the outset, you talked about the aging process. Uh, I once read that the n number on a bottle, whether it's 12 years, 16 years, 20 years, whatever, isn't as critical as the water, the grain, the barrels that it's aged in, that the number was really there for primarily the North American market. Is that a correct thing, or is it? Am I wrong on that? What I it's, it, the answer is kind of yes and no. Um, so you know the the the, the age on on a, a whiskey bottle um, 
uh, will tell you the, um, the age of the youngest whiskey in that bottle. So if it's, if it's a 12-year-old, then the youngest whiskey in that, bo in that bottle has been in, um, aged in oak barrels for 12 years. And obviously that process, that process of aging, you know, changes the, uh, changes the character of, of the whiskey. But it doesn't mean that you know, all um, aged whiskies are better than non-aged whiskies. There are many other factors that create flavor, whether it's you know, the grains that you use, the, the way that you blend. Uh, there are many different factors. Um, so we, you know, we have a range of, uh, and, and that's one of the great things about Canadian whiskey. The regulations that we have at our disposal are a little less stringent than uh, we see in other categories, and it enables us to be really quite flexible and create some amazing products. Um, and you know, so I can put my hand on my heart and say, what we have in our hands is, you know, the opportunity to make world-beating product. There's no doubt about that. Whether it's highly aged or whether it comes from our, you know, the other production processes that we have, what we just need is you know, the ability to be able to be supported, drive this business forward, create economic development, be proud of the product that we're, we're creating, be proud of, of a Canadian, genuinely Canadian product, added value, premium, that we can build in export markets. Thanks very much, Patrick. My pleasure. I'll ask uh, Peter Seaman from Grassroots Public Affairs to offer uh, proper appreciation. Thank you, Patrick, very much. On behalf of Grassroots Public Affairs, the lead sponsor, today's other sponsors, the Empire Club, and all of the attendees, uh, thank you for telling us so much about an industry with such a long storied history, one that's facing a tough regulatory environment, but yet still has so much potential. Since uh, Grassroots was formed in 2011, we have spent most of our time working in the agri-food sector. And our time working here in Ontario and across the country has taught me one thing, that not only is the country a wide and diverse place, the industry itself of food producers and processors of what's the spirits industry is a critical part, uh, has so much potential. We just need to do all of our part to inform and educate more of those politicians about the great opportunities we have here in this country. Uh, I'll, I'll want to thank Corby's, first off, for, for their creativity and leadership. You talked about some of the premium whiskey brands that you're bringing not only to the Canadian marketplace, but around the world. And thank you for your long uh, leadership in the, in the industry and with the Association of Canadian Distillers. I must uh, say, and I'll close with, that I personally do share your passion for uh, Canadian whiskey. I have quite a few bottles, and you know, every year at Christmas time, people always wonder about what to get those family members on their list. You nailed it. I wish I was on your secret Santa list. There's lots of room under my tree for a collection of bottles. So on behalf of everyone today, thank you very much for a very engaging presentation. Well, thank you very much. Uh, please look at the Empire Club of Canada's website for other events coming, coming up. Uh, importantly, we have our inaugural Nation Builder of the Year Award that's going to take place on December 13th. That award is going to the Toronto Raptors. Masai Ujiri will be, uh, will be joining us to accept the award and talk about the importance of the Raptors, not just as a sports franchise, but in uh, sort of pulling the country together. Uh, many other events as well. 
Thank you very much. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>